Hey everybody, it's Britt, lead pastor at Sunridge. Welcome or welcome back to our teaching podcast. You know, we are on a mission here at Sunridge to help people find and follow Jesus. We believe in the good news that Jesus welcomes all regardless of how far you feel from God. That means we're a great starting point to explore Christianity or to sink your spiritual roots deep as a devoted Jesus follower. We want you to know that during COVID, we're holding one big service outdoors and we'd love for you to join us whenever you can. And now, here's our teaching for this week. We hope it leads you to encounter the way of Jesus more fully. Welcome, Sunridge, and welcome online and podcast guests. I'm delighted to share our speaker for this Sunday, David Williams. David, his wife Jenny, and their four beautiful daughters joined Sunridge just a few years ago. Yep, he's a girl dad like me. David and Jenny jumped right in by leading Rooted. Jenny has been a speaker for our Girl Read Your Bible conferences. And I know David will tell you more about their ministry, but they spent over 20 years with Campus Crusade, serving in Moscow and the Middle East. And in 2014, they transitioned back to the U.S., where he opened a recruiting firm that specialized in executive placement within the food and beverage industry. David holds two advanced degrees, an MBA from Vanderbilt and an MDiv from Talbot Seminary. I'm so thrilled that we get to hear from him as we continue through the Sermon on the Mount. Enjoy. Well, good morning, Sunridge, and uh, thank you for that introduction. Uh, it, you're right, I'm not a part of this church in terms of being on staff. Um, not even a fireman, but my wife, Jenny, and I and our four girls have loved being a part of this fellowship and getting plugged in where we can. We feel very honored and humbled uh, to be a part of what God is doing at Sunridge and in California and around the world. And I just want to express my gratitude of being able to speak today. Britt and I were hanging out a few months ago, and Sunridge was getting ready to launch into the Sermon on the Mount series. And he asked me if I'd be willing to take a Sunday and share, and I felt very privileged and honored to do so. And so I'm glad that I can share today from the Sermon on the Mount. And I'm going to be looking at a passage in Matthew 6, and it follows from what we discussed last week, and it's Matthew 6, 19 and following through verse 24. And it says, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moth and rust do not destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are are bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, How great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. I'll share more about that later, uh, as well as my background, but I actually wanted to start out with a story. And uh, if you've been like me and you've gone into any store recently over the past six, eight months, you've noticed that there's hand sanitizer everywhere. You go into a store, it's, it's the dispensers are sitting there. You can use it before you go in, use it when you get out. There's wipes, you can you know, uh, clean off the grocery carts, whether you're at Albertsons or Home Depot or wherever you might be, everyone is cleaning their hands. And obviously we're doing it 
because we don't want to spread COVID. We don't want to spread different diseases or viruses. We want to stay healthy. But what's fascinating is the idea of keeping your hand, hands clean, even in the medical field, is a fairly recent phenomenon. And if you look at history, um, I'm kind of a history buff. I like different types of history, uh, regardless of what it might be. And I was reading the other day um, about this doctor in Vienna. And this was in the 1840s. His name was Ignis Semmelweis, a very interesting name. And he was overseeing the Vienna General Hospital. And so one of the things that he was observing is that for whatever reason, they had two different maternity wards. There was a maternity, maternity ward that was led by midwives. And then there was another one that was led by doctors in training. And historically, there was an idea that people got sick and people died because of bad smells. The whole idea of um, studying bacteria, the idea of what even a germ was, was not in existence. People didn't know what germ germs were. And so people literally thought, oh, I can die or get sick if I smell rotting vegetables, if there's raw sewage, uh, maybe a corpse, that can actually make me physically ill. And therefore, people would close their doors, close their windows in Victorian society because they did not want to get sick from bad smells. And so, as shocking as this sounds, you would have doctors not knowing how germs and disease spread. These doctors in training would go from literally dissecting a corpse into the maternity ward to deliver babies. And what Dr. Ignis noticed is that the death rate for mothers who gave birth with a doctor who had just performed a corpse or the actual doctors in training, the death rate for those mothers was significantly higher than it was for the ones that were led by midwives who had nothing to do with dissection. And so interestingly enough, one day a young doctor in training actually died of the same illness that one of these mothers had died from. And as a or it was as a result of him dissecting a corpse with a scalpel that also cut this young doctor. And they noticed it was the same exact disease. And so Dr. Ignis, not knowing exactly what happened, but suspecting that maybe a particle from this corpse had gotten into the young doctor in training and it killed him. And so what he did, he decided to have all the young doctors wash their hands, wash their scalpels and different medical devices in a chlorine solution. But he was just trying to get rid of bad smells because he thought that was still what killed people. Well, fortunately for him, there was a, a, an incredible success rate of not having these young mothers die. So the doctors, when they washed their hands, noticed that the death rate went from 18% to 1%. It was an incredible success story. And yet he was not very well received because Victorian society especially the doctors, did not think that they were dirty. And in fact, they took insult, like, I'm not a low-class person. I'm not dirty, and this isn't something that, uh, that I'm doing that's killing people. So it wasn't until the early 1900s that hand-washing became a common practice. And so what that means for me is that my own grandparents, who were born in the early 1800s, that was the first generation 
where hand washing was introduced. And it's crazy to think of now because it's so commonplace, but that was what was, that was the norm. My grandparents and probably some of your grandparents were some of the first people to be introduced to what's so routine, which is, which is washing your hands. So why did I read that passage about money and then lead into a story about germs? It, there may be a temptation to think, oh, okay, yeah, germs are bad. Germs kill people. Therefore, money is bad. Avoid it. It causes problems. And that's actually not what I'm saying. It's not what I'm saying at all. I'm, I'm more or less focusing on miasma. Miasma was the term back in the Victorian society for getting the diseases by bad smells. It was a misinterpretation of what actually got sick. It wasn't germs that got you sick. It was the smells that got you sick. And I don't want us to enter into a misinterpretation of this passage, miasma of this passage, thinking that money is bad. That's not what this scripture in this passage is saying at all. So we need to understand, we need to really get a good grasp on what scripture teaches about money and what God thinks about money. Now, as Britt had mentioned um, in the beginning of the message, I have four daughters. My youngest one, uh, some of you may know her, is Eloise. She just turned 10. And she and I, before COVID, would often go out on daddy-daughter dates to Augie's coffee shop that was you may know where that was. It was right by Kohl's before it closed down. And one of the things we would do is we would play trivia games. Uh, she likes trivia. I like trivia. We probably can't do the same trivia because I'm older and she's younger and we don't know the same things necessarily. And so one morning I'm doing a trivia quiz with her and I'll look up on my phone, oh, you know, what's a good trivia game or what are good trivia questions for children? And I'm asking her and she gets to the end of it. And uh, then it's my turn. So she starts asking me the questions that she had looked up on my phone. And about midway through, I'm thinking, these just seem like odd questions. I'm, where are these coming from? So I'm like, what are you looking at? I grabbed the phone and she had looked, <laughs> she was looking at questions for the elderly. So I don't know what that says about what she thinks about me, but I thought it was kind of funny. Um, but I do want us to look at a quiz from scripture or a quiz based on scripture. So I'm gonna ask you four questions and give you a chance to think about it. You're at home, you can Google it, you can cheat if you want to. Question, which of these is in the Bible? First one, cleanliness is next to godliness. Two, money is the answer for everything. Three, money is the root of all kinds of evil. And then four, every time a bell rings, an angel gets his wings. Some of you may know that one. Well, it sounds a little tricky, but I'm going to give you the answer. So surprisingly, and this really surprised me when I, when I first came across this uh, verse in college, number two is true. In Ecclesiastes 10, 19, it says, a feast is made for laughter and wine makes life merry. But money is the answer for everything. And actually the correct version, which is misquoted constantly all over the place, is in First Timothy, Timothy 6.10, it's the love of money. It's not money is the root of all kinds of evil. It's the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil. So what is this saying? Is it saying that money is going to make you happy? It's going to solve every problem you have? Not at all. It's just saying money is an incredibly useful tool. If we look in this 
first in Ecclesiastes. It's a tool. It's a very useful tool. If you've ever tried to live a month, a two, two months, three months without a paycheck, you'll see how beneficial money is. I had a friend um, that I worked with for many years in Kyrgyzstan, and uh, we were doing mission work. And he noticed that a lot of the students that he was working with couldn't make it to Bible study. He's like, what's the deal? Well, these were students at the, after the, the fall of the Soviet Union, and they were, for their school stipend, were getting maybe $25 a month to live on. And so he thought, you know what? I'm going to try to live on $25 a month just so I can relate to what they're going through. He missed a lot of meals and he walked a lot of places because it's really hard to get by when you don't have a lot of money. So if you're taking notes, pay attention to this. It says, God is not against money. God is not saying that money is wrong or that money is bad in this passage. Money solves many problems and has enormous benefits. So let's kind of dissect this passage. Let's step step back a little bit and see what the backdrop is of the Sermon on the Mount. So when we think of the Sermon on the Mount, it's very easy to depict 10, 15,000 people huddling around and following Jesus. And that would be completely accurate. There's probably at least 15,000 people around when Jesus was giving his Sermon on the Mount. But let me read you a verse. It's the very beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. And it says, now when he saw the crowds, this is speaking of Jesus, when he saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them saying, and so saying means he led into the Beatitudes, he led into the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, the antitheses that we've been covering over the last month or so. So why is that important? It's important because the Sermon on the Mount is not a list of entrance requirements to get into heaven. Essentially, what Jesus is saying is the Sermon on the Mount, everything that I've been teaching, this is what citizen of king, excuse me, kingdom of heaven citizens look like. This is just your characteristics and your behavior. It's not a to-do list of once you do these things, you get to go to heaven. That's not what Jesus is saying. And a lot of times I look at the Sermon on the Mount and I compare it to the Old Testament law. And if you know your Bible history and uh, what went on in the Old Testament, the promise was initially given to Abraham for God's covenant people. And the law, the Ten Commandments, actually came over 400 years later. And as God's people, as God's chosen people, they looked at the Ten Commandments, not as a to-do list, like don't do this, don't steal, don't kill, don't, you know, don't cheat. It's essentially saying, God to his people, you shall be these people. You shall not kill. You shall not steal. You shall not commit adultery. And if you've looked at scripture, And what happened over the course of the entire Old Testament, there was a continual failure of God's people to do this. And essentially, they throw up their hands and like, we cannot do this. We need a savior. We cannot live out these kingdom principles on our own. We need grace. We need a savior. And so when you look at the the New Testament, specifically the Sermon on the Mount, Britt shared this a few weeks ago right smack dab in the Sermon on the Mount, right before we get to the antitheses, is this passage 
and uh, it's actually verse 520, and it says, For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. And so a lot of the same things that were going through the minds of the Israelites, like I can't fulfill the 10 commandments. I can't live this out. Imagine what the the disciples were thinking when he shares all all of these things and they're thinking, I'm not a professional righteous person. I'm not a Pharisee. How in the world am I going to be able to do this? And they were left just like the Old Testament Israelites throwing up their hands and saying, God, help us. I need a savior. I cannot do this. And so as we look at the Sermon on the Mount, it's really important for us as Christians to realize that just as we needed grace to become Christians or kingdom of heaven citizens, we need God's grace every day to live it out. We cannot live out the Sermon on the Mount in our own strength. So that's a bit of a backdrop. It's always helpful for me me to go into a passage of scripture knowing what's the historical backdrop, what's the background, because it really directs how I interpret and how we should interpret what actually is being said. So we know that money is a good thing. God's not opposed to money. Look at the, the verse again, verse 19 and 20 and 21, if you will. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust and where th- destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moth and rust do not destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Importantly, we need to understand God's not talking about money per se. He's not talking about a $500 check you got from your grandmother for your birthday or a $10,000 bonus you got at work. He's not talking about a specific amount of money here. What he's, what he's directing the focus to is all of our material resources, everything that we have and everything that we possess. And so the issue What Jesus is getting at in this passage in in the first part in verses 19 to 21 is that storing up wealth, storing up wealth is about a pursuit. It's about a process. The issue is a pattern of living. It's about structuring our lives so that money itself is an end. It's no longer a tool. It becomes an object in a pursuit as an end in itself. And so Britt had shared a bit about my background. I spent 23 years with Campus Crusade serving in different parts of uh, the world, Moscow, Kyrgyzstan, the Persian Caucasus. And um, I actually wanted to be a missionary since I was about 12. And one of the reasons for getting my MBA was that growing up in the 60s and 70s and 80s, you couldn't just show up in the Soviet Union as a missionary. You had to either be a professor, you had to be a teacher, you had to be something. And so that was a strong drive for me to get uh, my business degree. But of course, things opened uh, opened up when the wall fell. And I actually was able to move to Moscow in 91 as a missionary. And we spent um, a lot of years overseas. And in the last country we were in, uh, we were able to hand off the ministry to the locals. We'd raised up a team. Uh, I was directing the ministry in that part of the in that part of the world in the Persian Caucasus. And we had been there for about eight years and had a great team that we were working with and was able to raise up the leaders and head off the baton. And so we were looking 
my wife, Jenny, and I were looking at, you know, different things that we wanted to do. Our girls were getting older. Schooling options were a bit difficult uh, where we were overseas, just in terms of high school and certainly college. And so we knew that we probably needed to move back to the U.S. And so having been on staff with um, crew for so many years, I was looking, where does God want us uh, to go? And I took a prayer retreat um, and spent about two or three days alone, just praying and walking through, where does God want me to go? And interestingly enough, uh, he led me into uh, business, um, completely different than what I'd been doing before, of course. And so we moved back to the U.S. in 2014. I retired, so to speak, from Campus Crusade, and I started a business, it sounds kind of crazy, that I had never done before and I had no experience in. So when we got to the U.S., um, I didn't have a paycheck. I uh, didn't have income. I didn't have salary coming to me. And uh, I essentially was starting a job that I really didn't know how to do. And no one was going to pay me unless I brought money in. I had four girls. I had car insurance. I had rent. I had to buy food. I had all these expenses, business startup expenses, lawyer fees, everything you can imagine. And I didn't know how to do my business yet. Literally, first day, I was looking at some of my notes the other day about, you know, here's my to-do list for starting the business. Get an email account. Start a LinkedIn profile. Literally, that's where I was. And so, it was stressful. It was extraordinarily stressful uh, knowing that I had bills, countless bills coming in and no income. And it put a fire under me like I had never had before. Um, it, it's just sobering and scary to think about. I remember driving Verity to school one day and Carrie Job's song was out, I Am Not Alone. And I would listen to that song over and over again. And I prayed the Lord's Prayer, give us this day our daily bread over and over again, because that's the situation I was in. And I remember waking up, this wasn't a couple of times, this was like night after night, week after week, month after month, like at 3, 3.45 in the morning, just covered in sweat. I guess I was just so stressed out. Like, I've got to get this business off the ground. I've got to get this business off the ground. I've got to, you know, I've got bills to pay. And I'm a skinny guy. I you know, probably can tell to a certain extent. I've never been a, I've been a long distance runner kind of all my life. I was at that season about 15 to 20 pounds lighter than I am now. And people at our church, they thought I had, had a disease or I was, I was rail thin. Now, if I had misinterpreted this passage, oh, money's bad, don't, you know, don't work, don't go for money. I could have greatly derailed getting money to pay those bills that I had. In fact, my brother who also owns a business, he has a great quote and he's a solid believer. This isn't like a greed quote. He says, work what's closest to the money. That's just wise and effective. If I was out running around doing all kinds of stuff that wasn't going to move my business forward, that could have derailed me seriously. God's not against money. And so think about it this way. Jesus is warning against orchestrating our life in pursuit of things that end up rusting away or being stuck in a storage unit for our grandkids to throw away when they're gone. He's not talking about missing a sales target or something like that. He's talking about how we orchestrate our lives. 
he knows that money is a fickle mistress. It's a, it's a one-way it's a one-way romance. We can love money, we can serve money, we can devote ourselves to money. Money doesn't care about us. It's never going to reciprocate what we give to it. Um, when I was in graduate school, um, young, single, um, I got interested in this girl, and she had moved to Nashville. And uh, you know, typical in you know maybe Christian circles or non-Christian circles, when you're kind of getting to know people, you start out in groups. And there was this one girl that I you know caught my eye, and we started hanging out in groups. And then I was like, well, I, I don't want it just to be a group thing. And so she and I started hanging out um, individually. I started asking her out. We started going to movies together, going out to dinner. And it's maybe not a term that's used that often anymore, but I had a DTR uh, a month or so into the relationship where I defined the relationship. And it wasn't anything just you know huge. I essentially just wanted to know where I stood. I, I told her that, hey, I've really enjoyed getting to know you. Um, you know, I like you. I like spending time with you. And I'd like to continue doing that. I wanted her to know where I stood. And she fortunately said, oh, me too. And I was like, great, you know, thumbs up. Let's keep doing it. And so we kept hanging out and doing some things. And we had a break, winter break. I went back to Memphis for some time. And then she went to where she was living. And then we circled back in Nashville after break. And you know, by this time, this is like six weeks, two months into the relationship. I'm into this girl. I, you know, I, great. I want to take it to the next level. And so I, I essentially said, as we were driving to, um, we were going to see the movie Edward Scissorhands, if you remember that movie. And I just laid it out. I was like, man, I, you know, I really like you. Um, I just want this to continue and, you know, to go somewhere. Great. And she kind of was slumping down in the car scene. I'm like, what's going on? And she's like, I kid you not. I had no idea we were dating. And I'm like, what in the world? And literally asked her, what were you thinking the last two months when I was taking you out? Point being, obviously it's a, well, it's a sad story, but it's a funny story. It, that wasn't Jenny, by the way, fortunately. Um, money is a fickle mistress. It doesn't care about us. And so we need to, uh, to guard ourselves against it. So we've looked at the, the beginning of this passage and take a look at the slide. So essentially the first part, what we, we read a moment ago, was a warning. It was an admonition. Don't spend your life pursuing something that will disappoint you in the end anyway. Why? Well, because the effect, the result of that is how, how it relates to us and God, what it does to our relationship with him. And it says in verse 24, no one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. So you might be thinking, well, I'm not a millionaire. I don't hate God. So clearly this passage doesn't relate to me. I don't have this dis, you know, despicable emotion toward God and hate him. So, hey, I can just tune out for the rest of the sermon. But that's not what this is saying. Historically, the literary meaning, the context behind this, behind this hate, it's neglect and indifference. It's not an emotional, vehement, just pushing away of God. It's just simple neglect and indifference. We, you and I as humans, we don't have an unlimited capacity 
to focus or pursue everything we want to in life. And think of it this way. Uh, We all have hobbies. Think about if you're fishing or golfing or mountain biking or painting or sewing or singing or whatever it might be. And we pursue it to such such an extent that we kind of wake up and realize one day, like, what happened to my relationships? You don't wake up and say, oh, I hate my wife or I hate my kids. But you realize that because of this pursuit, there has been a neglect and an erosion in these relationships, whether it's with your wife or your kids or your coworkers or with whomever it might be. We suffer the consequences because of these lost opportunities, because of where we have devoted our time and resources. In the, in the kind of silly quiz I did at the beginning of the sermon, we looked at 1 Timothy 6.10. And I only shared part of it, and I want to share the rest of it right now. It says, for the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil. We looked at that. And some, by longing for it, have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. And... God wants to spare us from that. I think the way I look a lot of times at God and specifically God's will is like an umbrella. In God's, under this umbrella, there's protection, there's provision, and there's pleasure. If we go outside, out from under that umbrella of protection uh, and pleasure and provision, we miss out on the things that God wants for us. It's, It's a slow erosion as we step out from what God wants for us. And we, we unfortunately suffer the consequences. So how do we avoid this? How do we avoid being pierced with all these different griefs? Look at this. I'm going to uh, bring up the, the passage again. The first part we saw was a warning and an admonition. The last part was the result. We can't serve two masters. It's the middle part that's kind of Honestly, I've what I skip over usually because it doesn't make sense to me or it didn't make sense to me. It says, the eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? What is that? Why is it even here? Well, as I had mentioned, I lived in the Persian Caucasus for um, the last eight years of the time we were overseas. That's where our girls grew up. And just like hand sanitizer is in the States now, in every store, wherever you go, they had a talisman that was all through the Persian world. You'd go into a house, it may be hanging at the end of a, a hallway. If you go into the store, it's over the doorway or jewelry. Women had all kinds of jewelry, earrings, bracelets with this talisman. And this talisman was to guard against what's called the evil eye. Uh, it's part of Persian culture. It's part of Hebrew culture. It was part of Jesus's culture during that day, Roman, Greek, Buddhist. It's prevalent in ancient culture And this talisman is to guard against the evil eye. And so the talisman actually looks like an eye. It's cobalt blue, then light blue, and then like a black pupil in the middle. I'm sure some of you have seen it before. This is exactly what Jesus is referring to in this passage is the evil eye aspect of of a curse. And um, specifically in this passage, 
It's the cause. So if we look initially, the admonition and the warning, and then we, at the end, we see the result. The cause of all this is, the, is what Jesus refers to here. It's stinginess and greed. It's an unwillingness to be generous. And you can look at other passage in, passages in scripture to verify this. The eye becomes corrupt through greed and it brings darkness. So how do we diagnose this cause of neglect? You know, just like in, in the uh, Vienna General Hospital, it wasn't miasma. It wasn't bad smells that were making people sick. It was germs. And just like us, we may ask ourselves, we may wake up and like, why am I you know, so cold toward God? Or, you know, why do I hate going to church anymore? Or why is there conflict in my relationship with my wife? Or why am I so overstretched financially? Is the root of that, we have to ask ourselves, is the root of that an unwillingness to be generous? Is there greed in our lives? And has it led us, has it caused erosion in our lives? And has it led us to being essentially in a very dark spot where we're pierced with many griefs? And if you look at it this way, that a lack of generosity, stinginess is in effect moral cataracts. It it obscures what we need to do to make good choices. And this isn't a retribution passage. Jesus isn't saying, you know, you store up wealth and God's going to zap you or he's going to do something bad to you. See, I told you not to do it and look what's happened. This isn't at all what Jesus is getting at. He's simply illustrating cause and effect. If you do this, then naturally what's going to happen is that. And he's saying that if we have a lack of generosity, if there's stinginess, if there's this drive to store up wealth, it will affect our relationship with God through neglect the end result besides that is also going to be piercing ourselves with much grief and harm and pain. Um, It's just naturally where we end up if we know where we're starting from, which is a heart of greed or stinginess and a lack of generosity. Um, So it's not wealth. It's not money that Jesus is condemning. It's how we've structured and arranged our lives. So I get it. You know, if your year was like mine, 2020 was horrible financially. Um, worst year of, of my life <laughs> in terms of my business. Um, I was on the cusp of all these great deals coming through in February of last year. And I'm thinking, this is going to be a great year. They all got tabled. They all got shelved. And in recruiting, as some of you may be very familiar with it, uh, essentially what you're doing is putting deals together between a company who needs to fill a role and a candidate who wants to have a job. That's essentially the way it works. And you know, part of my day is calling clients and like, hey, can we help you with this role or that role? The other part of my day is filled with interviews and finding good talent and candidates and so forth. Well, April of May of last year, March, April, May or so of last year, no one's hiring. I'm literally on the phone all day. Can I help you with this role? Uh, we're not, you know, call back in 2021. That was in March and April. And I'm thinking to myself, do I have 18 months of cash to live on? Um, I can have I refine my house if I do this, you know. I mean, my mindset was, where am I getting 18 months of cash? Because I'm assuming I'm not making any deals for the rest of the year. And as New Year hit, you know, two or three weeks ago, uh, it's always fun to kind of watch the you know year in review and so forth. 
and my family was together. We were uh, up late on New Year's Eve and watching TV and watching a year in review. And they said that last year, 2020, was in the top 10, I think they actually said number eight, of the top 10 worst years in U.S. history. In that list, included in that list, the Great Depression and the Civil War. So we've gone through an incredibly difficult period of time. And you may be thinking, can we just not talk about money at this point right now? You know, you may feel like you're just scraping by. I get it. I've lived this with you. Um, I was talking to my mom the other day, uh, as I mentioned, I'm from Memphis. And she said that the average salary for a family of four is $34,000. And I thought, man, what an incredible burden it would be to try to raise a family on $34,000 a year. But what I want us to realize and think about is, yes, this passage that we're looking at is written to 21st century Californians or Memphians or Americans or whatever you, wherever you live. But God's scripture is timeless. It was, this passage was also written to fourth century farmers in Alexandria, Egypt. It was written to 15th century Chinese housewives. It was written to 18th century Irish soldiers. It is timeless and it affects every Christian of every nation of every time period. It affects us all and God wants to speak to us regardless of what century, country, or place we've lived in ever if we belong to his family. It, and, and it's addressing how we have arranged our lives. The focus is not on our balance sheet or our bank statements. It's, it's on our heart. And so if you're, let's say you make $10 million a year, if you've got $10 million in the bank, please don't automatically think, okay, God's talking to me and condemning me in this passage because I've stored up wealth. And also don't think that, hey, I've, I make $10,000 a year. That's it. Clearly, this passage doesn't concern me because I'm not wealthy. That's not what, what's going on here. Um, he's, he's got something much bigger at play. He's talking about our heart, and he knows that money is a horrible master. And he has something much better for us in store than what money can offer. And I think for me, as I look at different passages of Scripture um, different things that I feel like the Lord is trying to teach me, or maybe a sermon I've heard or a book I've read. I want to go through a process of self-assessment. And I remember reading a book about 30 years ago, great book, uh, Finishing Strong by Steve Farrar. And Steve went through and he researched all these men. Uh, this was back in like, I guess the nineties, maybe late eighties as well all these men who had encountered moral failure, just you know, horrible things, unfortunately, that had happened. They were prominent men in ministry, and for whatever reason, they ended up failing morally. And he did all, I think he did like 250 or so interviews. And what he found that was endemic in every single one of these men were four characteristics. One was they were not having consistent time in the war. They just kind of abandoned, you call it a quiet time or however you want to name it, but they were no longer spending regular time with the Lord, whether in prayer, Bible study, quiet time, that sort of thing. That was one. Two was that 
um, they lacked accountability. There was no one speaking into their, into their lives or that they were sharing with about, hey, here's where I'm struggling. The third was that they were spending significant time alone with someone other than their spouse. And then ironically, the fourth was the mindset that, hey, this can never happen to me. Moral failure can never happen to me. And what he said is that without exception, every single one of those men had these four characteristics. And as he, he made an, a brilliant deduction um, and a challenge to the reader, readers of the book. He said, if you're missing one of those, then you have a seven, uh, 25%, uh, basically a 25% chance of failing. Uh, if two of those are missing, you've got a 50% chance, three, 75. He said, if all these are present in your life, a lack of accountability and time in the word and so forth, you have a 100% chance of failure. And he wasn't trying to be hyperbolic or anything like that. He said, this was the exact scenario of every single one of these men that failed. And so for me, sometimes it's helpful to get a way to self-assess, hey, am I guilty of something in scripture? And so I've got some questions that I just want to be brutally honest with us about to self-assess are we guilty of anything in this passage of scripture? And so I'm going to share them. So one of them is what percentage of, of our income do we give a year to the Lord and his purposes, whether it's the church, whether it's missions, whether it's a combination of both, what amount are we giving and how consistently are we giving it? Um, another one, are we cheating on our taxes? Do we live within a budget? Do you lie on expense reports at work? Do you cut corners ethically in order to save money? I had a, a repairman over the other day and um, he said, well, I, you know, it's gonna be a lot easier to replace this and repair it. Why don't you just get a home warranty? And I was like, oh, okay, yeah, that'd be a lot cheaper. Because uh, the repair was going to be, you know, $3,000 or the replacement was going to be $3,000. He said, yeah, you know, it'll be $75 once you, once you get the um, home warranty. It's like, oh, cool. And it will cover a lot of other things. Um, and then I realized, I was like, wait a minute, but there's a problem here that needs to be repaired. It's like, oh, just wait 45 days and then it's no longer a pre-existing pre condition. And it's like, oh, that doesn't sound right. That doesn't feel right. And it's like, well, and I'm flat out asking the next time he came over, it's like, in that line or isn't that not right to do that? It's like, well, yeah, it's not ethical, but they won't know. And I, I thought, I can't do this. I mean, how would it look if I said, oh yeah, that's a great idea. Thanks for saving me, you know, three grand. By the way, do you want to go to Sunridge next week? You know, is there something that I'm doing that you're doing in your life that's clearly violating other parts of scripture, whether it's lying or cheating or deceiving in order to have more money. If we're doing that, we're skating on very thin ice. Uh, we don't wanna violate one part of scripture just to have more money. And that's a huge red flag that perhaps we're guilty of what this, this verse is asking us not to do. So there, there are the different reasons for wanting to amass wealth. Uh, I understand it, I get it. it. It could be a fear that, hey, God's not gonna provide. So let me just, you know, so, uh, save every dime nickel that I can and hoard like a miser because I'm, af I'm afraid God's not 
uh, going to provide for me. Maybe it's envy. Um, hey, they just went on a great va- vacation to Bermuda. He just bought a new truck or whatever. I want to do that too. I want to look like them. I don't want to look like I don't have as much money. Uh, keeping up with the Joneses. It could be pride. Um, the idea that I deserve this. I work hard. I can store this up. I can keep this for me. Could be a lack of discipline. Um, and it may be that you're a new believer. You didn't realize this teaching was even in here. And that's okay. You know, we're all learning and growing together. But I want us to understand that greed leads to neglect in our relationship with the Lord. And it hurts us. We end up having these piercing pains and griefs and problems. And we need to reverse engineer ourselves out of it. So if you look at like a, a strand of Christmas lights and you realize, okay, there's you know 50 of them that aren't working. A lot of times you reverse engineer, well, which one is it that's blown that's caused the whole strand to go out? We need to do that in our lives. Like, why do I have this pain and guilt and conflict? Maybe it's greed in our lives. Um, I'll share a few last things. How do we avoid divided loyalty and idolatry in our lives? And uh, just a couple things. I think one of the the key issues is aligning our heart. Um, be honest with God. God is not an ogre. God has never taken someone who humbly comes to him and say, and that says, I need help and says, well, see, I told you so. He's not a bad parent. He doesn't parent that way. He's going to accept us. In fact, he's often the initiator. If you look at what he did to Peter uh, and so forth, he's initiating reconciliation after we've screwed things up. Come to God and just say, hey, God, I think I'm guilty of this stuff. Can you help me? And he's there to help. Um, Also know that God's going to provide your needs. We we can talk about this more next week because that's what the passage leads into. Be generous. Start to give. And, And I think the next thing is just being practical and realistic. You know, I think as Christians, we have a duty to steward anything that we have very well. And, you know, as kind of boring as it sounds, budgeting is one of those. Um, It's not easy, it's not fun, but it's necessary. Um, You know, if you work at a job, if you work at a fire station, whatever, you've got a budget, you've got to stay within the budget or otherwise, you know, there's gonna be huge problems. And so um, we've always taught, Gina and I have always taught our girls that, when you get a paycheck or you get money from your grandparents or whatever, there's three things you're going to do with it. You're going to give, you're going to save, and you're going to live joyfully on the rest. And so, um, and you can't really get out of taxes. If you've ever figured out a way to not pay any taxes, I'd be interested in hearing, but I don't think we're going to be able to do that. So if you look at your income, let's say you make $100,000 a year or whatever it might be, and I've told my girls this, assume you're going to really have to live on 50 to 60% of whatever your income is. You're not getting out of taxes. And we have to give and we need to save and whatever's left over, live joyfully on that. You know, I don't have a pension. My pension is me. Um, my kids, you know, they're not going to get division one scholarships playing sports probably. I've been saving for their college since the, the first month they were born. Um, we have, you're going to, there's going to be a lot of problems if we don't save, it's just going to be very difficult. And so if I'm looking at my own resources and the money that I bring in, 
um, and I need to live on 60% of it, that may mean, hey, I'm not going to eat out as much. I may not go on as fancy vacations as someone that doesn't save and someone that doesn't give. Um, I may not be, I probably won't buy a new car because I want to prioritize stuff for the Lord, the church, missions, and then also want to save. I've got to save. So I don't want us to come away from this sermon thinking, you know, a to-do list, how boring and how um, unmotivating. That's not what I'm getting. I'm not not getting at a to-do list here. Um, Jesus has always been about reconciliation in relationship. He's wanting to restore what was lost in the Garden of Eden. And I think as we come to this passage, or maybe even seeing where we failed in this passage, we need to have a great sense of humility. And I think if we look at the Sermon on the Mount and, and look at it and say, oh, I've actually done great here and pretty good here and awesome there, but you know what? I kind of suck here. Come to God humbly. Like I said, he's not an ogre. He wants to spare us from the pain that we will get ourselves into if we walk blindly because of greediness into neglecting the Lord. And I think the last thing that I just wanted to say and share with you is just a challenge. You know, how do we avoid neglecting our relationship with God and plunging ourselves into detrimental patterns that bring us pain? By having a lifestyle of open-handed generosity toward God and his purposes. You know, if we live in fear that God's not going to provide, it's going to be really hard to live this out. And fortunately, God gives us an answer for that. And that's what we're looking at next week. Uh, Sunridge, we love you. My family loves being a part of this church. I'm so honored and humbled that I got to share with you today. And I just pray for God's blessing on you and what he's going to do in all of our lives throughout the course of this week and this year. Let's pray. Father, I do come before you and just acknowledge we need you. Uh, We cannot live out scripture. We cannot live out the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, without your grace. Even as Christians, we need your grace. We didn't need grace just to become Christians. We need it every single day. Lord, thank you that you have secured our salvation. You have a plan for us that you will complete. And Lord, we look forward to celebrating uh, your provision and protection and our inheritance in you in heaven forever. Thank you. Amen. Hey, everybody. It's Britt again. Thanks for listening. If you need help with something, if you have a question, or you'd just like us to pray for you, you can reach us through email, info at sunridgechurch.org. Or if you'd like to know more about us, just go to our website, sunridgechurch.org, and you'll know what to do from there. We hope you'll listen in again next week. But in the meantime, wherever you go, deepen faith, bring hope, and live love.